Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Jim, for allowing me this privilege to preach. Uh, Jim was very specific in his instructions. I asked him, how long does the sermon normally go? What's the expectation? And he gave me the rough parameters for that, but then very clearly said, but take as long as you like. Um, I take that to mean that Jim takes as long as he likes. <laughs> now, it is a privilege to be here. I do confess it was a bit of a fright this morning. I think every preacher fears oversleeping on Sunday morning. That's, that's always a fear, and my plane didn't get in until about 3 a.m. this morning because there was some, some problems in Denver that affected Chicago. Well, I have to be at our church at 8 in the morning for we have a prayer time before our first service at 8 a.m. Um, so I set my alarm for 8 a.m. Uh, so I could get up and kind of get discombobulated from, from yesterday. And it went off at 8 a.m. And I looked at the clock. I saw it was 8 a.m. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've overslept. So I'm thankful that your service starts at 10.30. That was a great blessing to me this morning. I do want to let you know, I've had some problems with my eye about nine months ago. I was playing basketball. I had a great evening playing basketball. In fact, I was actually making a few of my shots. And I went home and was just sort of proud of how well I had done. And about two hours later, I had a retina detachment, and if you know anything about retina detachments, there's different types, and well, this turned out to be the most serious. I've had three surgeries, and I have another one slated for September, trying to get everything back on. They've had to do a cataract surgery in the middle of it, but I kind of see double out of my left eye, so I'm going to wear this obnoxious patch on my glasses, don't think anything of it, and they are fairly optimistic that things will go well with this last uh, little laser procedure they're going to go and hopefully clean up the new lens because it's all, it's all uh, cloudy again. So uh, we'll see what the Lord does with that, but just pay no mind to that. Would you bow with me? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you to be gracious to us. We ask that you'd minister your word to our souls, to our hearts. We ask, Father, that you would help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves, who think they're Christians when they're not. We give all this to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Evangelicalism, I believe, is at war with itself. You see, in its zeal to promote the freeness of God's grace, you know, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, I think it's gotten all twisted up. Now, of course, God's grace is absolutely free. He justifies the ungodly. He delivers the most defiled. By grace alone, through faith alone, he cleanses us from all of our sins and confers on us his very own righteousness. Salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, there's a whole plethora of passages that seem to imply the necessity of works 
or at least associate works with our salvation. Our passage this morning, the Good Samaritan, is one of those passages. Perhaps, I'd say, even the granddaddy of all such passages. And the scribe's initial question is a doing question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But before digging into our text, let me just go over a few preliminaries to keep you from being distracted uh, from this parable's true thrust. First, let me suggest that the Good Samaritan parable is about eternal life. That is, it's about salvation. It's about justification. It's about faith, true faith. So that whatever you do with it, you cannot divorce the lawyer's question on how to gain eternal life from the parable itself. And number two, in the process of teaching us about eternal life, the Good Samaritan parable will also define for us our neighbor. For as it turns out, identifying our neighbor correctly is foundational to inheriting eternal life. And this leads to a comment on the structure of the text itself, which I believe holds the key to interpreting it correctly. As we'll see, the text breaks down into roughly two parallel sections, with each section having three identical parts, an introduction consisting of the scribe's question, the body, which consists of the scribe's answer to his own question with Jesus' help, and a conclusion consisting, I believe, of Jesus' call to faith. Or to say it another way, the first section, Luke 10, 25 to 28, addresses eternal life from a more theoretical or academic perspective, whereas the second section, Luke 10, 29 to 37, that's where we're going to end, right at the end of the parable, gets at eternal life more practically with its look and smell, the look and smell of eternal life in the nitty-gritty of everyday living. More simply, you could say our text is like a test consisting of two questions. The first one, purely theoretical, and the second, requiring the student to put into practice that theory. But don't let all that throw you. You say, I don't know what he's saying. Just forget all that then. Just keep your eye, as I'm keeping my eye, keep your eye on the ball. Our passage this morning is manifestly about salvation and specifically about the nature of true saving faith. So let's dig in. Go to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to pick it up in verse 21 and read through verse 28, which is the end of the first section. I want to put it in a little context. Verse 21, Luke 10. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which, 
see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? Well, how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now we mustn't forget the context. I tried to incorporate that in that reading. True wisdom is present. The Lord Jesus Christ is wisdom in all that he says. True wisdom is present here, but the wise, the intelligent, as we're going to see, even the experts in the Mosaic law are clueless. They're clueless. Now, the question of this scribe, this law expert, is very clear. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question about the way to heaven even if it's probably an attempt to reveal Jesus' alleged disdain for the law of Moses. It's a test. He's putting him to the test. But Jesus takes no prisoners. He no doubt completely, by his answer, took the wind out of the scribe's sails. He doesn't disdain Moses. In fact, he says he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And thus... Jesus anchors his answer to this impertinent question in the very heart of the Mosaic Covenant itself, which every good Jewish boy and girl would have known. Jesus simply and coyly asks, what does the law say? How do you read it? If I was paraphrasing that, I'd say, how do you read it, Mr. Smarty Pants? You see, in other words, it's clear as a bell. It's clear as a bell what the law says. And Jesus isn't trying to evade the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Of course, to that, the scribe, kind of the gigs up, the scribe quotes the two great commandments from Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Leviticus 19, 18, love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. And the conclusion, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this, do this, and you will live. You know, we get a little twisted at this point. Do what? It's clear. Obey the two great commandments, and you will inherit eternal life. Oh, my goodness. Is this not flat-out works Theology, obey the two great commandments and you will inherit eternal life? Or perhaps Jesus is using the law, as in Romans 7, to simply expose the man's sin, as some have suggested, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, that's possible. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is exposing the nature of true saving faith by looking at its, at its fruits. That's what he's doing here. 
He's really talking about the nature of true law adherence, which is only by faith. We get that from Deuteronomy 30 and Romans chapter 10, which quotes Deuteronomy 30. It's not too difficult for you, this commandment. In fact, let's look at some other New Testament texts. You already looked at Leviticus 19, talking about what it means to love your neighbor. Go to Galatians chapter 5 with me, if you would. I think Jesus is talking about the nature of true faith, what it looks like, Galatians chapter 5. Familiar passage to most of you. Paul says this, verse 6, Galatians 5, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but faith working through love. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but a working through love faith. That's the kind of faith that justifies. We know that from James chapter 2. What kind of faith saves you? A faith that is linked to works. True faith always works. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. There's some interesting passages that maybe don't get the press because they're in the book of Romans. It's a lot to compete with there. But look at verse, pick it up in verse 28, famous verse of Martin Luther. Romans 3, 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, Luther added alone, from faith alone, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith through faith is one. The Shema, God is one. Now look at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? I mean, are we just disdaining the law? I think this is what's at the scribe's question. His suspicion is that's what's happening. Do we just nullify it? Do we throw it out? Is it no longer relevant? Look at Paul's response. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And we see that same idea in Romans chapter 8. Pop over there quickly. Familiar text, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, verse 1. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do we nullify the law? May it never be. We establish it. We fulfill it. Go to Romans 13. Paul's even clearer in applying it practically. Verse 8, verse eight Romans 13. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves the other, I think the New American Standard 
reasonably puts in his neighbor, but it's he who loves the other, the other another. He who loves the other has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. See, the, the nature of true saving faith, when you believe in Jesus Christ, there's a profound metamorphosis. There's an ontological change that occurs. You become a new creation. And part of that new creation is love for others that have become part of that new creation. Matthew 25, you don't need to turn to it, but I want you to think about that judgment. The sheep, the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. What's the criteria for separating those two? What separates, at the final judgment, what separates the sheep from the goats? Now, they're all kind of confused because what separates them is their love for Jesus Christ, their treatment of Jesus Christ. Remember, when I was hungry, you, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When, when I was sick, you took care of me. And what do they say? What do the sheep say? When did we do that? When did we see you sick? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you incarcerated? When did we see that? And what does Jesus say? He says, to the extent that you did it to, the, to, to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And likewise, when he takes the goats through the same examination, they say, well, when did we see that? When did we fail to do that? And he says the same thing. If you didn't do it to them, my brothers, my followers, you didn't do it to me. Depart into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, Jesus is just making a call to faith here. For the only way that you can do this, the only way that you can obey the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, is by faith. For neither is circumcision nor uncircumcision anything, but a working through love faith, a true saving faith. And thus, if the scribe were to obey, not perfectly, obviously not perfectly, but as a patterned way of behavior, if he were to obey these two great commandments, which of course can only be done by faith, it's the fruit of true faith, don't confuse root and fruit, it's the fruit of true faith, Jesus says, you will live. You have life. You have eternal life. That's the question. What must I do to have eternal life? Believe the gospel sincerely. You see, Jesus... Jesus is saying that obedience to the law is the fulfillment of the law in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit by faith alone. Jesus has just used the law of which the scribe was a supposed expert to turn the tables and now the scribe begins to scramble. And this sets up question number two as we discover this pathway to eternal life. This question is more practical. The lawyers 
interest now is not just to trap Jesus, but to defend himself. So let's pick it up in verse 29. Verse 29 of Luke chapter 10. Well, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down in that road, on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put them on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Again, the scribe leads with a question. Of course, Jesus, he's fingered him. The law he promotes, that is, that the scribe promotes, has just condemned him. To inherit eternal life, one must, according to the law, love God and love one's neighbor. But perhaps there's a way to contain the damage by limiting the scope of the command. Who is my neighbor? The scribe asks. Whom am I obligated to love? Whom am I obligated to cherish, to lay down my life for? Isn't that a small group, just my fellow Jews, which perhaps seems doable? Jesus' answer, which he again gets the scribe to confess. You know, you just don't want to go after Jesus, do you? He gets you answering your own question with what you know to be the truth to your own condemnation. Jesus' answer, which he again gets the scribe to confess, may I suggest to you, is absolutely stunning. Its profundity is beyond scoping out. Of course, his answer is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So what are the salient features of this familiar Parable. I fear this, familiar is, this parable is familiar enough to, if not breed contempt, maybe indifference. You think you know it? It's like, oh yeah, the Good Samaritan. Yeah, I know that one. Well, just step back for a minute and say, maybe I don't. Or maybe I'm a little skewed in my thinking. Already now you're like, okay, what's he going to say? Just stay with me. Stay with me. Let's go through it. What are the salient features of this familiar, perhaps overly familiar parable. First, a man, presumably a Jew, there's really no real debate about that. Some of the commentators are absolutely dogmatic. It's, it's not even an issue in the story. This man, presumably a Jew, is robbed, beaten, and left half dead on the notoriously dangerous 17-mile, about 3,000-foot descending road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a haven for robbers. Well, the focus of the parable is really how three different travelers treat 
this man in this condition. Now the first two, religious leaders, an Aaronic priest and a Levite, both failed to help. And therefore, both failed to love their neighbor. Now I agree with Dr. Stein that attempts to decipher their motives for avoidance are, are really utterly irrelevant. It doesn't really matter, as Jesus' summary of the story shows. The only point that Jesus is making in the parable is that these religious leaders, and presumably the ones the scribe would have identified as his neighbors and good neighbors, they failed to love their neighbor. They weren't good neighbors. They weren't good neighbors. Now, by contrast, by stark contrast, is the action of the Samaritan. Now, you probably know that Jews hated Samaritans. Now, it was mutual, but the point here is that Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were racially impure. You know about the 722 B.C. Assyrian invasion and the intermix between Assyrians and Jews. They were half-breeds. That's what they were called. They were called half-breeds. And they were religiously defiled. I mean, they first offered to help rebuild the temple. When that was rebuffed, they built their own. It's completely sacrilegious. In fact, so hated were they that when Jesus' opponents really wanted to stick it to him in John 8, really say it like they meant it, they not only said that he was demon-possessed, which you would think would be bad enough, they said he was a Samaritan. I mean the lowest, deepest cut of all. Now the Samaritan in our parable does everything that the priest in Levite should have done but didn't. He felt compassion for the man. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil, probably to relieve pain. Olive oil was something of, a, of, of an anesthetic. And he poured wine on him, probably to staunch the infection. Alcohol does that. It burns, but it works. He transported him to an inn for rest. And after spending the night with him, he left him in the innkeeper's care. He left the innkeeper a good chunk of change and promised more if needed upon his return. And so here comes Jesus' question. Who proved to be a neighbor to the robbed and beaten man? The scribe asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks what at least on the surface appears to be a different question. Who proved to be a neighbor to the robbed and beaten man? Or you could say it this way. Who loved his neighbor as himself? That's the question. And to the scribe's utter chagrin, he is forced. I mean, it's, it's an open and shut case. There's only one answer to this question the way Jesus has set it up. To his utter chagrin, he's forced to acknowledge the Samaritan as the only true neighbor as the only one who loved his neighbor as himself. And Jesus' conclusion in verse 38 is almost identical to verse 28. He says, go and do the same. Do this and you will live. Go and do the same. 
So what are the implications? What are the upshots from this parable and from this text of Scripture? I think there's at least three. And then I'll give some practical applications. Implications. First, the Samaritan clearly loved his neighbor as himself. And by necessary implication, if we use the Matthew 25 logic, the Lord his God. Those two are always linked. And thus, the Samaritan has life. Do this and you will, leave. you will live. The Samaritan has true faith. The fruit of his works, proof that he has justifying faith, and is therefore an inheritor of eternal life. He's met the criteria that Jesus set out, that the scribe set out. And thus, and second, by way of implication, to inherit eternal life, you and I must do likewise. That means we're to love the down and out among us in the church. In the church. Our neighbor is our brother and sister in the church. Like widows and orphans. What does Acts 6 say? They set apart seven men to do what? To take care of the Hellenistic widows in the church. What does 1 Timothy 5 say? It tells us. It gives us very clear instructions how to care for the widows indeed in the church. James 1 says to care for widows and orphans. The context is the church. We must love the least of Christ's brothers and sisters lest we be ranked with the goats and depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And third, and I'm partially indebted to Josh Griever of Phoenix Seminary, his presentation at ETS last fall, the Samaritan, in loving his neighbor, proved himself to be a true Jew, a Jew who is circumcised inwardly, a true law keeper, one who has truly fulfilled the law, a true neighbor, unlike the priest, unlike the Levite, and unlike, by implication, the scribe asking the question. And thus, and here's the kicker, here's the real quick kicker, and thus, as a true neighbor, the one to whom the scribe owed love. Do you see it? Isn't Jesus brilliant? He's turned it right on its head. He's exposed this guy for the counterfeit faith that he has. You see, the Samaritan was the scribe's neighbor. Horror of horrors. That's the guy you've got to love. Who is my neighbor? That Samaritan over there. You see, because any follower of Yahweh, any true law fulfiller, any true member of the covenant community, regardless of race, regardless of pedigree, regardless of class, regardless of location, by virtue of having true faith and the works that validate that, of Father Abraham, the father of us all, any of those types are those we're obliged to love. Owe nothing to anyone but to love one another. This fulfills the law. You shall love your neighbors yourself. 
We see that all over the New Testament, this idea that that's who we're to love. Romans 13, we looked at Romans 15, Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 5, all clearly define neighbor as a member of the covenant community. So where does that leave us this morning? I think three things. Preachers have to do everything in multiples of three. Three things. First, it leaves us with clarity regarding the gospel and specifically the nature of true faith, of saving faith. Now at my church in Vermont, Christ Memorial Church, we've distilled the outline of the gospel and trying to help our people this isn't copyrighted. In trying to help our people, you've got an evangelistic training, feel free to use it, Jim. In trying to help our people to be more evangelistic, we've distilled the gospel to a three-point outline. See, still three. Sin, Savior, and saving faith. In fact, when we baptize, we just had a baptismal service last Sunday. We've got another one coming in two weeks. When we baptize new converts, we use that outline for the questions that they answer while they're in the water after they've given their testimony ready to be baptized. It's our formula for baptismal questioning. Sin, what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that we are sinners in Adam, that we have inherited Adam's sin and the guilt of that sin, and we justly deserve God's wrath. You've got to say that if you're going to really tell somebody about sin. About the Savior, you've got to talk about his person, that he is God, that he is God in the flesh, the Word made flesh, and about his work. Now, the reason sin is so important is that the atonement makes no sense, does it, if we're not clear about sin. If we don't understand that sin fully deserves God's wrath, that every single person in this room, every little boy and girl, I just dedicated my ninth grandchild two weeks ago at Christ Memorial Church. She is the cutest little thing, Zoe Jane, little fat face, a little Italian. She's got hair all over her body. She looks like a monkey. <laughs> cutest monkey you've ever seen. But when I dedicated her, I said, she's a sinner. And she deserves God's wrath. As cute as she is, she deserves to die. She deserves to go to hell. But Jesus came. He died on the cross. He suffered our death in our place. He was cast out of God's presence, east of Eden. That's the atonement. And yet, if we leave it there, we've missed the gospel. We've truncated the gospel. Sin, Savior, saving faith. I think that's what Luke... 10 is helping us to understand that when you truly believe there is this massive change in your soul, you become a new creature. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness, Romans says. And that enslavement looks like love. It smells like love, love for the body. We know we've passed out of death into life. Why, First John says, because we Love the brethren. That's how we know. And so the question is this to you this morning. Is your faith this faith? 
Is that your faith this morning? I know you're here at church, but just because you're in the garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you're sitting in the pew doesn't make you a Christian. Is this your faith this morning? I'm not trying to be adversarial or combative, but I, I'm asking the question. I know in Christ Memorial Church, there's an awful lot of people in my, in my church. They come every Sunday. Some of them serve, and some of them even tithe. I don't know who they are. I don't have access to that. They're givers, but they're not Christians. While I don't necessarily know who they are, I know after 25 years of ministering in that church that they're there because I've seen them come to Christ. And, and I've said, you know, make sure you keep serving, keep giving. Uh, it's a joke. Uh, I'm asking you, is, is your faith this good Samaritan's faith? If someone was to follow you around for a week and audit what you do, would they see that love for your neighbor in Christ, love for your brother and sister in Christ is what governs your life? Or are you just about yourself? And you're just got a little show muscle showing up here at church on Sunday. Are you more like the scribes and the priests and the Levites of Jesus' day? Religious, maybe even a Bible reader. Maybe you know a lot about theology. It's easy in a town like Louisville, isn't it? But you've never really believed the gospel. And that's evidenced by the lack of your love for your brother and sister in Christ. John says this, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And it's very practical. Food, clothing, whatever they need, even the least of these. Is that your life? Are you the real deal this morning? In your heart, do you know that you've been transformed by God's saving grace? Second, it leaves us with the priority and character of love, this Good Samaritan parable does. What does 1 Timothy say? The goal of our instruction is what? Love. Love. Love must characterize us. The world knows us. How does the world know that we are his disciples? Jesus said, by our love for one another. That's how they know. Is that the culture here at Kenwood? I'm assuming it is. I'm certainly hoping it is. Are we loving one another? Or are we more prone to judge one another for things that the scriptures do not require conformity on? How about your conflicts, Kenwood? Are we resolving those things quickly? You get mad, you get irritated. Everybody gets mad and irritated you know, at, at, at other people. You've heard the limerick. You know, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. To live below with saints we know, oh, that's another story. Yeah. You get irritated at your spouse, you get irritated at your kids, you're certainly going to get irritated at your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the question. Are you resolving those things quickly? 
Are you taking Paul's admonition and not let the sun go down on your wrath? Don't give the devil an opportunity to come in and, and infect and poison the body of Christ. Are you taking that seriously? If you're out of sync, if you're sideways, if your nose is a little bent out of joint, are you making that right and doing it quickly before it goes toxic? Because anger always does. That's love. That's love in action. Paul says that everything must be done in love. We must be diligent to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters as ourselves. And finally, I believe this text helps us to clarify our mission. This is the signature text to justify works of mercy as the mission of the church, even to justify their necessity in order for you to be saved, evidence that you're saved. But I think neighbor is wrongly defined to include everyone in need as opposed to every believer in need. And thus the church has been tempted to go off mission, supplanting the preaching and teaching of the gospel with a lot of non-missional activity. But we must be clear, bringing eternal life to every tribe and tongue and people and nation is the mission of the church. Yes, do good to all men. We've got scriptural precedent for that. Mustn't confuse that, however, with our mission to make disciples of all the nations. We're his witnesses. That's our job. Let's be clear about our mission. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this text, this word that you've given to us. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the way that he reveals himself as the word made flesh, showing the wise and the intelligent that they're fools, that they're lost, and they need him. Oh, Lord, we pray that any that are here today, that are outside of Christ, that you'd be merciful to their souls. Oh, that they would come to Christ. Come to Christ. And for us that know you, that we would be fervent in our love for one another and thereby validate this gospel that we preach. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.